Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on Chopper's Politics. There's a public out there who are looking at this lot thinking, this is such a shower. It really is. And, and whatever they have to say, we just won't listen and wait for the next mob. Charles Lewington, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you on. Pleasure. Back in the Red Lion Pub, where you spent many years, I imagine, back in the 90s when you were the head of communications for Number 10, when John Major was Prime Minister. One of the great conspiratorial watering holes of Westminster. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to be there. Great to be there. Now, of course, you're running your CEO of Hanover Communications, one of, the, one of the UK's biggest PR companies. Let's look at history. Do you see similarities between what Liz Truss is going through right now and what John Major went through when you were in charge of the, of the press operation then? So yes and no. Yes, in that her credibility has been quite badly damaged, as was Major's after Black Wednesday. And when uh, you lose power in number 10, it's very difficult to get things done. The civil service machine doesn't jump in the way that you want it to jump. And everybody tries to drive a wedge between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, which of course eventually was Norman Lamont's undoing in the 90s. No, in that the party still has a majority of 80. Because uh, then it was like fewer than 20, wasn't it? And, oh, and declining. It was far less than that. And uh, you will remember during some phases of the, of the mass 
Maastricht bill, John Major relied very heavily on the DUP to get legislation through. But it's only a notional majority of 80 because, of course, she probably only has a majority of about 20 for the main planks of her fiscal programme in as much as we know what it is currently. So she does have more wiggle room in terms of Parliament than when it comes to votes than Major did. Mm -hmm. And what lessons would you take from that time? Authority is leeching away day by day. I mean, Tory MPs appear to be going a bit mad at the moment, quite frankly, in the way that they're briefing other journalists um, behind the scenes, behind without saying who they are and saying that she's got to go. I mean, Well, the polls are grim. I mean, in all aspects, you know, in terms of her personal credibility, in terms of the party's reputation for economic competence. And what will happen is Conservative MPs become more and more shrill in their attacks on the Prime Minister. They think misguidedly, in my view, that by being more outspoken, that somehow they might reduce the swing against them in a subsequent general election, which I think is just a bit of a myth, to be honest. And so you'll get more of the Robert Halfon a type outburst that we heard last night at the 1922 committee that will be that will become more frequent. Mm. So it's a blue collar criticism to say that you're ignoring this for the red wall voters who did so much to deliver the majority in 19. Yeah, so there's a paradox here in that uh, you know Helfon is a low is a low tax conservative, but if the price of delivering tax cuts is an unfunded delivery mechanism that then means interest rates go up higher than they might otherwise do, then it ceases to be a, a, a red wall measure. Mm. And, you know, therein lies the heart of their dilemma. Yeah. So just finally, on, on, on the major comparison, is defeat inevitable? We're two years away from the next election. It's pretty grim, but there's a narrow mm. pathway okay. where you stabilise the markets, where the markets buy the OBR recommendation, the Chancellor has to accept compromise on the back of the OBR recommendations. The Bank of England does what it should do and raise interest rates. The bond markets settle because a lot of the turbulence in the bond markets are traders betting against interest rate rises. So are you saying there, looking forward for this trust right now, does she need to unwind parts of her budget? Is what is there what should remain? I think she's going to have to. We're already hearing questions being raised about the corporation tax measure. To be honest, I was slightly surprised uh, that they decided to stick with the current rates rather than not splitting the difference between the Rishi proposal. 25% from 19. Correct. So maybe settling at 21. As I saw Gerald Lyons this morning was describing it as, you know, maybe a low-hanging fruit. But in terms of revenue raising, it's not a vast amount of money. And also it can't be kind of floated and debated in isolation from the whole package. Mm. So I think she will want to insist that the two key planks of the package, which is the cut in income tax and the reversal of Rishi's increase in national insurance, remain at the heart I of the I think stamp duty might go? Don't know. The trouble is that the I think we'll see over the next month, we'll see a decline in house prices because people can't afford the mortgages that are currently on offer. So there'll be quite a lot of logic actually in keeping stamp duty in place, at least until the government knows where the mortgage market is going to settle. Because, mm. you know, the reason the variable rates are so high at the moment is they're reflecting long bond rates, rather than necessarily where interest rates will settle once we get through this current period of turbulence. So there's a big timing problem mm. here. And on timing, there's a kind of sequence of events happening over the next few weeks, which can be maybe better ordered. Now, the Chancellor's brought forward the OBR medium-term forecast from November 23 to October 31st. You've got a meeting of the MPC, the Bank of England MPC Monetary Policy Committee, which will set interest rates on the 3rd of November. 
Should it be that those two dates, October 31st and November the 31st, should be on the same date? So it's a kind of one-hit intervention by the OBR and by the NPC. If possible, I mean, of course, in the 90s, the Chancellor's set both interest rates and fiscal policy at the same time. Now the Chancellor doesn't have the flexibility, but because there is an imbalance, if I can put it nicely, between what Bank of England are trying to do and what the Chancellor is trying to do. There's an argument for persuading the Bank of England to bring bring forward their rate-setting meeting, possibly to the morning or even the day before, and ensuring that the rate-setting committee is privy to all the measures that are going to be announced the following day. Yeah, but it shouldn't be any more measures, should it? It should be simply OBR medium-term forecasts. Yes. Should be. Should be. But to accompany the medium-term forecast... He'll have to make changes to the current plan. Yes. What does Liz Truss need to do? Do you think she needs to say sorry? Saying I get it in her party conference speech last week didn't really do it for me personally. I think often sorry can be quite a disarming way of resetting. Yes. You know, the the difficulty about apologies is that once you make one, you've got to make a (laughs) hundred. Well, do you though? Because Well, yes, but, 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 but maybe not now. Maybe at some appropriate time when the markets have settled down. You know, I think that that would be good, sensible advice. Mm. And, and if she can bring it herself to do it. And what's your advice to her personally? Because I heard mixed accounts of the 1922 meeting on Wednesday. Some said she did really well. Mm. And then the problem they've got is that lots of the critics left the room and then their mind was made up about this trust before they went in. So get told journalists what they wanted to hear, possibly in some cases. So there's definitely two accounts of how she's going down privately with MPs. Well, it's a very badly split, panicky party, mm. you know, because the poll numbers are, are, are appalling. Well, they're worrying about livelihoods now, aren't they? No, so, of course, of course. So what, are they, what jobs are they going to be got... doing? And, uh, you know, they'll be, they'll be thinking how they pay the school fees in two years' time. Yeah, that's uh, very real, real fear. That is very real fear, and how they indeed pay their own mortgages. Because in the, after the 1997 election, I think you and I have talked about this before, there were a lot of Conservative MPs who thought they were going to be in seats for years and years and years and years, and they found it quite difficult to get jobs. You know, so, they can't so, all join Hanover Communications. No, they, they certainly can't all join Hanover Communications. So to come back to your question, what she does need to do is to stabilise the current economic situation. So that means thinking through the sequencing and the timing and what trimming she might need to make in order to get a finance bill through uh, the House of Commons. Because That's our, enacting the mini-budget. Well, yes, the finance bill will be enacting the mini-budget, and the finance bill will be an opportunity for her critics to attack her, knowing that if they destroy two finance bills, then she uh, will probably be forced to resign. Mm. And that would be the scenario in which, you know, the men in grey suits would have to work out what the alternative was. You and I are probably men. We sometimes wear grey suits. What, what, what would you do? Is it a kind of Michael Howard situation when he came in after Ian Duncan Smith resigned suddenly in, I think it was 2003 or 2002 from memory, and then Michael Howard was acclaimed as a new leader? I mean, you can't go through another 12 rounds of hustings with uh, two more candidates, can you? No, you, you would have thought not. The whole thing's got a sort of very 18th century feel when, you know, prime ministers were, were dumped after a few weeks at the whim of the king. Um <laughs> But yes, you're right. I don't think the 
you know, if the party can get together yeah. at a sort of senior level and say that this is a moment of crisis, both for the country and for the party, then we need to think about a compromise candidate. Who can acceptable to both the base, the membership base Correct. and so MPs. The membership base and, and, and MPs. And, you know, there are lots of ideas like whirring around. Um, I had Paul Goodman this morning talking about a sort of Penny Mordaunt, Rishi Sunak double act, because between them they would have a majority, they would command a majority of the parliamentary party. But then who gets what job? That's all a bit unclear mm. and a bit vague. And obviously, but it is a crisis. This this is, this feels like an existential crisis in part, certainly for this government, doesn't it? And perhaps that's a, that's a moment to put aside differences that came about in the leadership campaign and find a new solution for the country. Well, depending on what happens in Ukraine, uh, you know, we might well find ourselves in a quite a perilous situation in November, where actually the party has to rise above itself and decide what is best for the future of the country rather than distinct from the future of the party and kind of try to work out what a compromise candidate might look like, whether it's sort of Ben Wallace as a sort of war leader type solution or whether indeed it's economic stability that the party needs to establish. So whether it's Rishi, who's certainly... Uh, had the command of the markets when he was, you know, when he was chancellor, even though he wasn't an instinctive tax cutter. But if it was Rishi, then the mini budget would be reversed anyway, and it's pretty much in its entirety. And on top of all this, there's a public out there who are looking at this lot thinking, this is such a shower. It really is. And, and whatever they have to say, we just won't listen and wait for the next mob. And just finally, Charles Lewington, looking at the leftist page in the Telegraph, Michael Healy writes in from Norfolk to draw comparisons with how Harold Wilson failed to get a clear majority despite the problems with the Heath government in the early 70s. Do you think that Labour should be careful what they wish for? Yes. Yeah, so uh, my 70s history is a political history is a bit sketchy, but the Labour Party was probably less electable than it is nowadays in that it was, I think, still the Unilateralist Party then, I can't remember. Uh, and also Heath had only been in power for four years, hadn't he? The problem for the Conservatives is, I know they were in coalition with Liberal Democrats for five of the 12 that they've been in power, but that is a long time. And, you know, voters were at one point prepared to give Liz, Liz Trust the benefit of the doubt, but all that dissipated on the back of the mini-budget. And we haven't talked about the media, the role of the media here, in that one of the features of the 1990s is the media didn't give Major any space at all, apart from the, the, you know, the couple of cheerleaders. The sun switched in 96. And everything I hear would suggest that the number 10's handling of uh, the media leaves a lot to be desired. And they even now? Even now. And they certainly need to up their game. I mean, it was pretty appalling during the party conference. Well, Charles Lewington, uh, CEO of Hanover Communications, former press secretary to Sir John Major back in the 90s. Thanks for joining us this week in the Red Lion Pub, your old haunt. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London 
and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. It is. God, yeah. So I think I'm the first woman who's ever even stood to be chair. So I'm very pleased to be able to smash that ceiling. Yes, off, sorry, of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And the first 2019 uh, intake to become a Select Committee chair. So I feel very humbled. And the support has been amazing over the last few weeks. But I think it's one of those things where... I've never had an electorate of 650 or just under in my life. So you can't really judge it or how it feels. And then to actually see people come through and say they really do believe you. And there is that thing, I assumed that at least 30% of my colleagues were lying to me when they said they were going to give you their number one votes. And it looks like they weren't based on the data. You so. won it. I did, yes. I try to focus on, I mean, I think it's a bit like any election, conversations on the doorstep are the things that make the difference. And I think colleagues want to know that the chair will listen to them. And it's not just a, hey, will you give me your vote? But it's a, what matters to you? What international policy issues fill your inbox? What do you care passionately about? And so many MPs never get to talk about their foreign policy passions. And not everyone wants to sit on the Foreign Affairs Committee, but they do care about it. And they now realise that it matters as much as domestics. Exactly that. Everything. Yeah. So I actually thought I'd lost uh, in the a my whole time I thought it would be kind of ten votes in it no matter what, but just before he announced it, well about three minutes before he announced it, because Jim Shannon was in full swing. No, no, and no one should. You know, it was on Northern Ireland, absolutely, and he's he's just become a grandfather, so we're all very pleased for him. (laughs) But the speaker turned to me and he gave me the saddest face and he shook his head, and essentially he was telling me I hadn't won. And so I thought, okay, fine, I've he lost. Knew he, knew. he knew I'd won at that point. So I was like, oh, I've lost. And I, I felt so heartbroken and crestfallen, but I thought, well, I don't need to do a point of order anymore. I don't need to be ready. And then he announced I'd won. And I just got this enormous shot of adrenaline, which therefore meant my words lost me slightly. But later in the tea room, I said to the speaker, I said, I, th- I thought I'd lost. You told me I'd lost. And he essentially said, I've got to get my kick somehow. (laughs) And so he did do it on purpose, but he is, I get on really well with Lindsay. I have so much respect for him and he's a really fair and decent chairman. But uh, yes, he was, uh, he certainly got me and I was so sure I'd lost. They are enormous names. And I think it's right that a seat, you know, a role like this has such a, 
tough and well-fought battle, but they will continue to make an enormous contribution to foreign policy from the backbench, I'm sure. Were they generous in defeat? Yes, yes. Have you heard from them? Yes, I have. So Richard Graham was in the chamber and he was very sweet, as was Liam. So, And I, I think I saw a text from Ian, so I just need to go back to him. Look, we, I was very clear I was going to fight a clean campaign and hopefully that's what colleagues saw. I just put forward my case. But I won't say it wasn't disappointing to hear, oh, she's an inexperienced young woman. When, you know, when you've spent years of your life working on this, you know what's under the engine, you know how it works. How old are you um, So I am only in my mid-30s. That's not young. Um, but, well, th- thank you. I uh, do have children. <laughs> there we go. Very uh, no, no, it's experience. fine. I think I'm the youngest ever select committee chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee as well. So, but it was the woman card was played quite heavily, which I thought was a shame because people were sometimes asked, are you voting for her because she's a woman or because she's best of the job? And what was very kind was the amount of colleagues who put people in their place and said, no, because she's best of the job. Mm. exactly and it was good learning for me because i saw what it was like for ministers on the front line doing media and then that's where i then moved more into the world that i fell in love with but it was a great start yes i did i'm not sure if they still keep it in line but i think it expires in 2026 but it makes no difference though as an mp because all mps are equal and in our parliament there is no such preferential treatment or trust of mps to give them special briefings So I think what is great about the 2019 intake of MPs across all parties is that so many have real world experience. They bring with them enormous experience from all sorts of different fields, all the way through to being stay at home mums, which I think is so important as represented in Parliament, all the way through to the most senior military person we've ever had, the first ever female regular army. Of course, I go for the security examples. We've got standout lawyers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think my advice is that you have to just do what makes you happy. And I think one of the big problems in Parliament is that people don't respect the role of a backbencher. And I would like to change that. So a lot of people said to me, you shouldn't be running for chairman. You should be waiting for the ministerial ladder to come your way. And I said, well, A, I don't really think that's going to happen anytime soon. And B, I love being a backbencher because my team said to me, if you were to get a ministerial offer, would you take it? Because you won't be able to fight anymore on the, the maternity change that I want to bring in or the bypass I want to bring locally or all the different campaigns I might be fighting for, running the Bosnian APPG. And I wasn't sure I was actually willing to give those up. So we do need to shift away, though, from the sole focus on unless you are on the ministerial track, you are not achieving anything. Yeah, he's fabulous. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think one of the big challenges is about how the party recognises that I think they're going to see more independence from MPs going forward. Well, starting, I mean, briefly on this yeah. trust, I mean... Mm. Look, I think William Hague in The Times, I apologise... At Foreman of the Telegraph, absolutely nailed it in terms of his article this week. You know, on the 6th of September, we had a cabinet and ministerial positions put in place that was not a cabinet of unity or a promotion of unity from across the party, despite the fact that Liz was coming in with the least support ever from MPs, the least support ever from the party. 
And that was a real surprise. And then we saw this mini budget, which again was her saying, well, I don't care. This is my stake in the ground. I'm going to be a disruptor. I called her a disruptor months ago and she is a disruptor. But the problem is with disruption is you still have to make sure you bring your base with you and your team with you. And that's the big challenge. I don't see the engagement I'm seeing from number 10 and from around the party with the backbenches continues to be with those who are loyal to Liz. And that's a real issue in my mind. But maybe we're going to see a change. We all want it to work. You know, we want to be fiscally competent again as a party. We want to be morally competent again as a party. But that requires real work and it's not easy and it's not swift and it requires difficult conversations and meaningful conversations. And it's not a one conversation. We need to transform the system so that there is meaningful dialogue with the party to bring us with them. And, you know, the letter, I think it was in the Telegraph from the voluntary party saying MPs need to get behind the PM, the cabinet could take the same message. But actually, we are one party and actually the cabinet needs to support backbenchers and vice versa. So we all need it to work and we all want it to work, whether it's because of our mortgages or because of the energy crisis. So we want it to work, but it requires meaningful thinking and it also requires you cannot be too much of a disruptor when you are prime minister. As a backbencher, I can disrupt away and it's my job to be sometimes more hawkish than the government to help them make the case they want. I, so I have to say, I haven't spent any time thinking about how that would even happen. Also, not least because I've been running a campaign um, and we haven't been around. But I think that would be very dangerous. And I think the scars from removing Boris, although he left of his own accord, those scars will run deep for a long time. I think people should be very cautious before rushing into things. But also at the same time, what would that say for us to go through to another leader so soon? Look, I was one of the Boris backers right before I came into Parliament. I wanted him to achieve. I wanted to succeed. I wanted a one nation conservative PM who was going to fight for the things that mattered. You know, he promised me my conversion therapy ban. He was right on Ukraine. He made a lot of the big right calls. But at the same time, as I said, we need moral competency and fiscal competency. Those are the two things the Conservative Party is meant to offer our voters and our backers. And unfortunately, in my experience from working with Boris, is that too often when I spoke to him, whether it was about awful things to do with behaviour of certain colleagues or bigger issues, I was misled. I hope I've got two years. People told me last night I didn't. So let's see yeah, how... Well, I'm, I'm yeah. So there are a couple of inquiries that I don't want to throw the baby out of the bathwater, what the phrase is, and Tom Tooth, that was a great chairman. We're doing an inquiry into the Indo-Pacific. That needs to continue. But I do want to tilt away slightly within the Indo-Pacific tilt inquiry towards India. We don't have a policy on India, as we saw with Suella's comments this week. It's coming back into the fore. Absolutely. Kashmir is an issue. It is indeed. Exactly. And that's it. And Kashmir matters to so many of my colleagues from having spoken to them over the last few weeks. We need to look at what our policy position is on India, because I don't think anyone in government could tell you what our policy is on India, apart from want a trade deal. Russia, aren't they? Which, they are. Which, 
of the invasion in terms of their behavior in multilaterals, but also their behavior in terms of defense sales, energy sales. You know, they're buying very cheap oil off Russia. But this is then goes to a bigger question that I need to work at how we tackle as a committee, which is global south versus global north. We're seeing increased absenteeism from the global south in terms of these big issues. Look at the Ukraine votes and the Xinjiang votes over the last few weeks. But we've also got the north sort of saying, you have to pick between China and Russia. We can't say that to them. It's not our place to say that to them. It's also not our place when for the last two decades we haven't offered them anything and we haven't fought for the multilateral system that they rely on to defend themselves. We haven't helped them in terms of tackling the issues they have at home, whether it's justice or access to resources or basic human rights within their countries. So there are a few things I want to look at, such as international justice architecture, hostage state taking. We're currently doing a state hostage taking inquiry that has to continue because the foremost job of the Foreign Office is to keep British people safe. It is all this world stability, but also that. Each family has to decide what they think is right for them. And the thing is, every case is different. So when I was in the Foreign Office, I actually supported one of the families of somebody who was being held hostage by Daesh. And I was brought in because the special cases team that look after those people couldn't give them as much information as they wanted. And so I was stepping in to provide more emotional support, but also to look at how else we could support them and marshal that this was their entire lives. Nothing else matters when your loved one's being held hostage. Paul Yuri's family, I've been speaking to his brother over the last few weeks, because obviously whilst, yes, we brought back five British nationals, Paul Yuri was murdered, and that is state hostage taking, and that is state murder. So we need to look at this inquiry. The Americans have really revolutionised how they're doing state hostage taking cases. We need to do it, but also we need a multilateral approach. The war in Ukraine. Mm. I do, yes. I've got two Ukrainian families who live with me and I'm a bit I'm I'm actually pretty devastated about what we saw on Monday because what we saw was Putin terrorizing civilians because he can't win. Attacking Kiev. And it's interesting that on Friday they put in charge the man who committed appalling atrocities in Idlib in Syria and various other places in Chechnya. But my families had told me on Sunday night that they'd planned now to go home for Orthodox New Year, which is the 6th of January. And they were so excited to have a plan and a timeline and not to be living in limbo anymore. And then that happened on Monday morning. Their families had just been liberated from Russian control maybe two weeks before. Everything was going the right way. And then to see that brutality, which is solely for Russia's domestic audience to show that they're terrifying the Ukrainian people, it's really hard. But we will keep doing Ukraine. But I think rather than reports on Ukraine, we need to hold kind of important, A, briefings for MPs. That's something I've done as a backbencher on Taiwan, on Bosnia, all sorts of different issues where I've brought MPs into the room and said, I want you to feel as informed as we are on these issues. I want to do more of that. But on Ukraine, we just need to keep a constant watching eye, make sure we're able to do those quick focused, in-depth inquiries into bits where there are specific concerns. So with China, for me, there are so many ways in which we need to be focused on the issues there. But for me, it all comes back to resilience. So for the last 20 years, you've had terrorists that behave like states, and that's how our entire state infrastructure is focused. Now we need to move the recognising that we have states that behave like terrorists and who are undermining our multilateral systems, who are undermining our supply chains, human rights trustees, But one of the biggest issues, which only the China Research Group, which I chair, has focused on, is digital theft. So, for example, all the CCTV cameras around this country, they are recording your gait, how you walk. They're recording how your mouth moves and reading your lips. And they are sending back that data to China. They are stealing your biodata to build their tech totalitarian state. 
That is a massive concern. But also things like Newport Wafer Fab, where without the China Research Group, we wouldn't have talked about it. So it is absolutely about human rights. What, something which was going to be bought? Semiconductors, they were going to be bought up by the Chinese. Right. That's been blocked, I think. It has been blocked, and we need to make sure it stays blocked. So for me, it's actually about the systemic resilience of the system, because whether it's cultural, informational, economic, uh, military, you name it, we mm. do not have resilience with our system. And that is a 20 to 40 year project. And the Commonwealth, is that how it looks? So the Commonwealth absolutely you know, does. That's a new focus, I think, for post-Brexit. So I think people love to bash the Commonwealth, but actually any fora where we come together in ways that we wouldn't normally, but also where countries who are smaller or might get heard less in other fora get to be heard, it matters. And so I want us to get together and think about how we support the Commonwealth to be as effective as possible, because it is important for, particularly if we're seeing some of those Commonwealth members not necessarily stand up for the things we want them to do in terms of Ukraine or Xinjiang or other situations. No, I don't. Do I don't think that? I get. The only thing I think I get is a new office, secrets. which I'm very excited about. Well, so office. I think I get to move office. That's more yeah. Staff, um, so I work with the clerks who I already know from the Foreign more Affairs staff. Committee, who are fabulous. I'm very lucky to have such an amazing team of clerks who are waiting for me in the chamber yesterday. Whisked me straight off for an hour's briefing about what we should be doing and decisions they needed made. But yeah, so it is exciting times. But I just want to take a week or two to speak to colleagues, listen to them, and yeah, work out a plan. No, thank you for having me. Hey, Chopper. Great How to be you here. Doing? Good to see you in the Red Line pub. Who's winning the war in Ukraine? China. Okay, that's obviously a curveball answer because they're not actually in the war, are they? Well, it depends what you mean by the war so, and who you see the competing forces. Okay, forces. Russia versus Ukraine is the war. What do you think about when we think about Ukraine? Yeah, but it's more than that. I mean, this is a war for values. This is a war of an autocratic, totalitarian state against liberal values, the rule of law, human rights, and quite frankly, what is the right thing to do in the 21st century? Let's just shut that down. Why is China winning the war in Ukraine? Because this war is weakening Russia, first of all. It's making the rule of law increasingly blurred. It is blurring the power of the United Nations. It's saying that even a permanent, a P5 member of the UN Security Council can do whatever the hell they like when they want in their interest. They don't have to take account of international opinion. They can do what they want in their own interest. It's also drawing Europe into taking a much greater role in, in its near abroad. Now, you could you could say, who's done more to strengthen NATO unity, Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump? I mean, that's another maybe a question for another day. But in terms of making Europe take a greater interest in its near abroad, this war has done great things for that. And therefore, what does that mean for the United States? Does that mean the United States can disengage and focus on the rising challenge of China? Or does it draw the United States closer in? So geopolitically, China's doing well because the war is distracting and drawing attention towards Russia and then they can get on with their things they do. In terms of the actual conflict in Ukraine, who do you think is winning that? So Russia, since 2014, Russia now sit on about a fifth of Ukrainian territory, the the areas in the east and, and Crimea. So they're winning now, right? So they've gained more land. 
Again, it depends what you mean by winning. I know this all sounds very, very fudgy, and we're very close to the Ministry of Defence. I hope I don't sound like some sort of Mandarin from there. But, but you know, defence questions about defence are very rarely black and white, very rarely yes or no, very rarely one or the other. So this war, there's the military war, the economic war, the political war. Russia is being pushed back militarily. Okay, it's camped out on a fifth of Ukrainian territory, but it's being pushed back. It's achieved none of its aims. This three-day lightning offensive to take Kiev, knock out the leadership, and hey, presto, jobs are good and just hasn't worked. We're now eight months into that three-day blitzkrieg. There's no way. They've got their land corridor. Putin always wanted a land corridor from Russia down to Crimea. He has that. But what he wants to do is extinguish Ukraine as a sovereign, independent, economically viable state. To do that, he's got to do a lot more. He's got to push across the south coast. He's got to take the city of Odessa. He's got to make rump Ukraine, just a landlocked country with very little access to the sea. You have to go through Moldova or or wherever else. I mean, there's just no way that that, that he can push south at the moment. He can't even get past Herzon. He can't go to Mykolaiv, let alone Odessa. These things that a few months ago we were worrying about and thinking there could be an amphibious assault in Odessa, for example. He's just off the cards now. There's no chance of him pushing that far. There's no chance of him pushing in the Donbass, which apparently this is what it's all about. He says it's all about liberating, in his words, liberating the Donbass. He's going nowhere there. He's got the Wagner group that's smashing their heads against the town of Bakhmut at the moment and going virtually nowhere very, very slowly. Militarily, he's losing. Politically, the non-Ukrainian bloc, I won't call it the Western bloc because there's many, many other countries around the world who are not in the West who uh, support Ukraine in this war and want Russia to be pushed back. So the the non-Ukrainian bloc, international bloc, has not crumbled as Putin thought it would. And as he's tried to do, he's tried to drive a wedge between these very countries using all sorts of means, I believe, up to and including Nord Stream attacks, but we can come on to that. So politically, all it's done is solidify the international consensus that Russia is in the wrong here. And finally, economically, still going to be a cold winter, but it looks like Europe is in a better place to survive weaning itself off Russian oil and gas supply. So politically, economically, militarily, Russia is going backwards. So I would say they are definitely not winning. Ukraine are winning, but still a very long way away from winning the war. The war will not be over until Russia is pushed back to its pre-2014 boundaries, i.e. they are out of the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts, or they've been pushed out of all the territory they've taken since February the 24th this year, and including Crimea, right, which is, which is a massive one. I think it will end next year. I think there's probably a couple more major moves this side of winter. I think the freeze then will benefit Russia, to be perfectly honest, but I think in the spring... As in, it'll benefit Russia because they can flood more people in. But the people that Ukraine will be able to put in in that time will be better trained, better equipped, better led. There will be more supplies of Western weapons. Yeah, you've got to be careful about the language. I don't, in, in no way do I do I welcome the recent strikes from Russia, these missile, these indiscriminate missile strikes. But there was starting to be a belief that the war was over and the civilians could relax and not go to the bomb shelters, that the West didn't really have to put that much effort in. All that's gone out the window in the last sort of 72 hours. Yeah. So there's still a very big fight to be had here. I think the Western nations needed that little reminder before the winter. So coming out of winter next spring, Russia will have loads of these conscripts with I don't know, two, two or three days training. The Ukrainian army will be smaller, but better led, equipped and trained. And I think... There's not a lot left behind those front lines so which, in the Donbass. So next year, a month? I think by summer. I really do. With yes. finger on the nuclear button. Yes. That, that, I mean, that is the ultimate backstop here. That, that's the big 
concern. I think there'll be a major battlefield reversal by next summer. I think Ukraine could be well on their way to, if not take back their territory at great cost. I mean, let's not gloss over this. There's going to be a lot of Ukrainian fighters and civilians who are going to suffer still and die in this. But I think they could they could take back huge swathes of their territory next year. What does Putin do then? He's made no bones about a potential significant military loss would warrant the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, they, they rattle this cage a lot. Medvedev in particular, head of their National Security Council, former prime minister, a bit of an ultra-nationalist. He keeps talking about the nuclear stuff because they know it presses our buttons. And so it should because these are horrific weapons and we shouldn't take them lightly. Putin has been a lot more measured. So in this week, we've had Sir Jeremy Fleming, the head of GCHQ, gave the Rusi annual security lecture. And he talked about this and said that for all the bellicose language, Putin has never said, if you do that, I will use nuclear weapons. It's always been this sort of, he's left it for us to fill in with our own fears and our own prejudices. And we've done a great job in that. He's made some stupid, reckless, arrogant decisions, number one being invade Ukraine. Can never say never, but I'm kind of with Sir Jeremy Fleming on this, that there's no signs at the moment that he would seriously consider it. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've discussed this a lot on our podcast ah, on, on Ukraine the latest, our daily, a daily podcast going every day. Thank you. Every day since day three of the war. So there are a lot of theories out there that, you know, who, who did the Nord Stream blast? Was it an accident? Was it Russia? Was it America? Was it you know, Ukraine, NATO, what have you, what have you? Very few of these arguments are proper tinfoil hat brigade conspiracy theory. I mean, that you could put a reasonable argument for why it might be in America's interest, or NATO, or Ukraine. But none of those eclipse why it would be in Russia's interest. So I'm kind of an Occam's razor here, that in the absence of any other really compelling evidence, what is the most likely, who benefits the most, I'm still with, this was Russia. I was even more convinced of this yesterday, when Russian MOD spokesman cast doubt yet again and said it's obvious that it was a cabal of Norway, NATO and the US or whatever. I mean, insert country of choice here. But yeah, it's just the typical Russian disinformation, delay, deny, distract, discredit, just push all the arguments away. Yeah, well, he makes a lot of money from it. He makes a lot of money elsewhere. There's all sorts of sanctions busting going on at the moment. What does he do? It shakes the snow dome. Okay, so he's he's losing on the battlefield. He's got to do something else. He's got to press other buttons. What's he got left? Politics, economics. He's got to do other things. So he's gone for critical national infrastructure. So he's just testing to see where the limits are, our limits outside Ukraine, of an attack on critical national infrastructure. Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, spoke about this yesterday at the Defence Ministerial NATO headquarters in Brussels, talking about an attack on critical national infrastructure belonging to a NATO member might be Article 5 territory. An attack on one is an attack on all. So we don't know yet, just like an attack in cyberspace. Nobody really knows where Article 5 is. So Putin is pressing these buttons just to see what he can get away with. Not surprising that we've had Nord Stream and then just a, a few days later... These strikes in Ukraine are going for civilian infrastructure. So he's just testing the limits. He's seeing what, what is possible. Thanks, Shopper. <laughs> 